0: You're listening to the Fanfic Maverick Podcast, the show where I talk to fanfiction writers about their work and the marvelous world of fanfiction. This show may contain adult themes and language. Listener discretion is advised. The following paragraphs are from Chapter 8 of a fanfiction story titled Made of Clay by today's guest fanfiction author, Fantomato. His first year with Harry had been the most difficult. Back before he had fully committed to making his life as pleasant as possible in order to minimize the annoyance of caring for him, Tom had thought he might be able to sustain Harry primarily through magic, monitoring charms, cleaning and changing and warming charms, animated toys to occupy his attention, and a little magical assistance with getting him to sleep. None of it worked. Harry cried incessantly and he only stopped when Tom would pick him up. The label holding would have been generous for what Tom did. Harry would cease his bawling if Tom so much as took him up by the armpits. Tom wasn't stupid. He knew that human contact was considered necessary for children, but he had intended to off this specific child and wanted nothing to do with him while he worked to solve that problem. However, Harry stayed quieter when he was in the same room as Tom and was happier still to be sat on Tom's lap and amused with tickles and teddy bears. So that was how it had started. Harry began talking in that second year of his life, and Tom wasn't even sure how. Tom had probably been talking to himself as he read and took notes, as he disentangled old rituals and applied new variables. Harry's first word to him had been some version of fuck, and Tom realized that he desperately needed to replace that if he ever hoped to purchase groceries again. His second word, after some consideration, and a concerted effort on Tom's part, had been dad. That was the beginning of the end. If Tom hadn't been so close to breaking through the problem, well... A child clinging to him and calling him Dada might have stopped him. Voldemort was a man of perseverance, though, and saw the project through. Despite that, it was more than Harry calling Tom his father and his need for entertainment that brought them together. Harry had. he had horrific night terrors. Tom had ignored them as long as possible, but he wasn't getting any sleep with the screaming infant. And even running to Harry's room to coddle the boy until he fell asleep after each episode was not enough to enable either of them to have a restful night. And there was no question of who had been responsible for inspiring night terrors in a child so young. So begrudgingly, Tom had hauled the crib into his own bedroom. Once Harry had graduated to sleeping with loose blankets, Tom did away with the crib entirely and allowed Harry to sleep with Tom in his own bed. Then he solved the issue of undoing the ritual protecting Harry... And the idea of anyone, even himself, taking the child away from him was unfathomable. The prophecy wouldn't matter if he never treated Harry as a threat. Voldemort hadn't even been active for nearly three years. On the other hand, Harry followed him around and laughed at his silly magical flourishes. Harry slept through the night when Tom was in the room. Harry called him dad. To the north, south, east, and west, four corners of the world, greetings from the wild era desert of the American Southwest. I'm your host, Chaos Blue, and this is the Fanfic Maverick Podcast. Our special guest fanfiction author today is Fantomato. They have been a member of AO3 since 2020, and they currently have 37 fanfiction stories posted under the Harry Potter series. Fantomato is known for writing Tom Riddle-centric fan fiction, so today we get to focus on the villain of the franchise, and I am so excited to do that. Fantomato, welcome to the show. How are you today?
1: Hey, thanks for having me. I'm doing okay. How about you?
0: Excellent. I am so excited because this is the first time that we have had a whole show dedicated to the villain of the series. But before we dive into that, I want to go back to the beginning of your fan fiction Can you tell us a little bit about how you discovered fanfiction for the first time? We want to know everything about that.
1: Right. So forgive me because it has been a little bit, but I remember getting into fanfiction when I was a much younger person in the early aughts, primarily because I was interested in the Phantom of the Opera series, not series, musical, book, etc. There was a movie version of the stage play that came out in 2004 and i was a tiny little musical nerd at the time so phantom of the opera was one of is one of the most well-known broadway musicals ever certainly it's the longest running and i think it was nearly the longest running at that point too i think cats had like still had an edge but it was right around this time that phantom was becoming the longest running musical. It was getting a big screen movie adaptation with like A-list-ish actors. And I was at that impressionable stage where I was consuming everything I could get my hands on about it. I was consuming the, obviously the recordings of the cast recordings of the musical. I was going back to the original novel. There was this, there's this whole cottage industry of original novels based on the Phantom because it came out of copyright protection in like the eighties or the nineties, something like that. Or maybe it was earlier. But it's it was public domain, so people could write their own novelizations of like different eras of the Phantom's life or different takes on the base story. There was this really big one from nineteen ninety three, written by Susan Kay. I think it's just called The Phantom or Phantom or something like that. I have a copy of it on my bookshelf, but not in Reach. And it was out of print at the time, but it was hailed as, like, the big thing that you had to read. It was the romantic, soft reimagining of, like, the tragic backstory. And so I had my parents hunt it down on eBay so I could get a copy. And I found fanfiction through this, because when you were Googling, I suppose, Phantom of the Opera, fanfiction.net came up, and a bunch of people had been writing Phantom fanfiction probably back to the zine days, but certainly it had taken off since the movie became a up-and-coming, exciting thing. And I just fell in love with it. The idea of getting to write these characters to have a different ending, a happier ending, one where they don't all die, well, one where the title character doesn't die a horrible, tragic death. Getting to like reimagine the story from the villain's perspective getting to write the ship that i liked better than the one that the the books and the the stage play technically ends up with it was it was just a revelation to me now i was also reading harry potter books at the time as everyone was and so i did find harry potter fan fiction soon after that but despite the fact that it's my big thing now It wasn't the one that stuck with me. Phantom was where I stayed mostly as a child. And it is the one that will always sort of like define my early fandom experiences for me. Oh, That is
0: so, so cool. Okay, so I'm curious now about what you said about the Phantom of the Opera. It's so fascinating to me that people were writing these novelizations because the work had come out of the copyright domain, so it was kind of like free game, right, for everybody. And so I'm assuming these were commercialized novels, right, that people were writing and then they were published and for sale. Is that right?
1: Yes. Yeah, these were commercialized novels that some people were putting out. And the fandom space was still huge, which was kind of interesting, is that you had both the commercial work that was fan fiction, right? Just- presumably with a copy editor and you had fan fiction on like fanfic.net for free sometimes of the same length and quality in parallel with one another but it was exciting in certain ways you have this like the the k the susan k work is still prominent enough within the fandom that it's it constitutes its own sort of canon you know there's like the people who accept the Susan K background as the canonical background for the phantom and people who don't but that official publication gives it a sort of credence or status that isn't the case for like just a very popular fan fiction right
0: right right it sounds like that was pivotal like a pivotal work for the fandom that a lot of other people probably based a lot of their stuff on. We were talking about Fanon a little bit before we started recording. And that kind of sounds like that work was absolutely pivotal. I'm so curious. It sounds like you got into Phantom during a era where the internet was starting to become a thing, right? And online fandom was starting to become a thing. Was your involvement in the Phantom fandom sort of a thing you did on your own? Or were you involved with other people also excited about that same fandom that you were in online spaces?
1: God, it was a long time ago. I was moderately involved, but actually I would say the bigger thing that defined fandom participation for me at that time was that I was one of the people within my offline friend group who had the easiest access to the internet. And so I became a mediator for fandom between my real-life friends and the fanfiction community. And what would happen is, like, I would spend the night trawling for fanfiction and then physically print off the best ones. And then we would read them as a friend group. (gasps) That sounds amazing. So you had in-real-life
0: friends at that time that were also involved in the same fandom? Yes. Yes. Oh, my God. You know what? I love that? I did a fandom history episode project last year with the podcast. I did that with Sarah at the Talkin' Fan Fig podcast. And we did this uh, two-part series on fandom history. And that required a lot of research. And in my research, I read so many accounts of people who remembered how before the internet was really such a staple in our fandom experience. A lot of people's fandom experiences were those in-real-life experience with their in-real-life friends gathering around the kitchen table to talk about the things in their fandom that they loved so much or the characters that they loved so much. And there were so many people who recalled doing exactly what you did. When the internet was first brand new, they would go trolling and they would physically print out these fan fictions to bring to the next in-person fandom meeting at somebody's house. And that's how these fan fictions were initially being shared with people, right? I think that's so fascinating. I love that.
1: Yeah, it was it was the sort of thing where I don't know, I can't say whether my friends would have gotten into fan fiction if not for that, but that was part of the magic of it, right? As they had dial-up and I had broadband, they had one computer and we had a couple in my household and I had access to a printer. And so great, I could... I could print these things out. And then we could share other people's writing among ourselves. And it was probably the better choice than engaging as like a 12 year old with strangers on the internet. Probably. Probably safer. (laughs) Probably safer. Um, (laughs) But no, it was it was a lot of fun. And Certainly my online fandom participation since then has been mostly meeting and talking to other people online. But I will never forget those early days of like fandom being the window into the sort of like fic creating community, plus my group of real friends, real life friends who would sit around and read it with me.
0: Yes. Oh, I love that you had that experience. I have yet to have that, but I carry hope for the future that someday, you know, <laughs> I'll find some in real life friends that are just as strange as I am and, uh, and love the same things that I do. So I love that you had that in real life experience. And I love that you mentioned the dial-up internet because that's exactly what I had in the 90s. And what I remember about fan fiction in the 90s is that when you encountered a fan fiction story posted online and you encountered the link for it, it was very common for people to include the file size of the fanfiction next to the link so that you knew what the file size was because if you are operating on dial-up fanfiction, you would need to know what the file size was so you would know if it was worth it for you to click on that link and download the story because <laughs> some of these stories could take you quite a while <laughs> to actually download on dial-up. So, that's just one little tidbit that I remember
1: from oh, 90s yes. online
0: fandom. <laughs>
1: Absolutely. And this was, why, this was why I had grown up in a household where I had always had broadband. It was just one of those sort of like lucky coincidences that my parents had elected to be early adopters of this technology. And so it was definitely a thing where I had access because of happenstance. And I think that is what allowed me to get involved with fandom from an early age, whereas if I had been on a more traditional dial-up and single computer shared among everyone in the household type setup, it would have been harder to be involved as a preteen. Oh, yeah, absolutely.
0: Absolutely. That was the setup that was at my house, and I will say that it was difficult. <laughs> I grew up in a, in a family where my parents were, oh, I don't want to, well, strict. I guess let's use the word strict. And I definitely had to spend a lot of time hiding my online fandom activities from my family, which was difficult because the computer was in the family room where everybody gathered at the end of the day. So how I kept it hidden, I have no idea. But that's neither here nor there. So judging from these stories, of course, we get the sense that you've been in fandom for quite some time, which is amazing. I love that. Besides the stories that you've already shared about your experiences within real-life fandom with
1: your real-life friends, are there any other favorite fandom memories that you wanted to share? I am trying to think. I honestly feel like the thing that is special is the the real-life friends from those early days.
0: I don't blame you at all. If I had an experience like that, I would say that that would have been my favorite, too, just because there's really nothing like having somebody right there in front of you that you can just go on and on and on and on about things that you love. And I love that you helped introduce them to fan fiction. I love it. It makes me wonder if they're still involved reading fan fiction today. Probably somebody out there, right? Your your friends from back then are like, oh yeah, telling all of their friends, my introduction to fan fiction was when Fan (laughs) Tomato printed out those fan fictions and read them out loud to us and stuff. So I think that's just so cool. Okay, so would you say that fan fiction has changed or evolved from the time that you first discovered it till now? Because it sounds like you're remembering the <laughs> the early days of online fan fiction posting. As you mentioned, fanfiction.net, and you probably are also familiar with like fan fiction posted on people's personal websites. <laughs> so you have been reading it online for quite some time, like I have. Have you noticed some interesting changes in fan fiction
1: from then versus now? Uh, There are tons of changes. I don't know. I'm sort of like, I'm a little sensitive to some of the ways that they're changed. I don't want to come across as terribly rude. I guess I'd say that some of the changes have felt most obvious to me these past few years as I've gone back to old stories that were written a couple of decades or more ago because you don't always notice it as you're living through it. And I would say that, for me, it really stands out how sex is treated differently. And I'm not going to claim it's perfect in everything, or it was ever imperfect in every way, but you definitely notice the changed attitude towards portrayal of homophobia as like a necessary theme in any sort of slash fiction, right? I read something from like 2005 these days, and it's it's like, there's a lot of internalized homophobia, there's a lot of externalized homophobia. And that's just, I would say, not a, a standard or essential part of a slash story in the modern era. And, and so I think you can really feel a lot of how the world around us has changed in The way that queerness or just sexuality more generally is built into these stories.
0: Yes, absolutely. I love that point. As those things become more ingrained in the general consciousness of society, you do see those changes flow into the way that fan fiction is written, talked about, and all that good stuff. I'm curious, I have this throwaway question for you.:
1: <laughs> Sure. Go for it.:
0: When I was in the '90s reading my first pieces of fan fiction, I do not remember ever encountering a fan fiction that was a reader insert, those your name fan fictions. I feel I feel like that's something that's really become more popular the last, I don't know, six, seven, eight years or something like that. Did you remember if that was even a thing
1: back in the 90s? I had not seen it. I can't say it didn't exist because I'm in, like, I've mostly stuck to book fandoms over my decades here. So definitely like a small lens in terms of I don't read really any real people fiction. I don't read really anything about even movies or TV that much. But book fandom, never saw it. And now I see it all the time. Okay. Yeah. Okay.
0: Okay. So you've got the book fandoms covered. Most of my fandoms are probably TV shows and movies, so I've got those covered. And I never saw anything like that in the '90s. I think the things that we used to see a lot in the '90s were very obvious, some um, like Mary Sue stories. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, you saw that all the time. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That was a thing, and you know, people had very strong opinions on the Mary Sue stuff. But I never remember seeing reader insert, and then. You know <laughs> when I saw the Mandalorian maybe what two or three years ago for the first time, and started going searching for Mandalorian fan fiction, I was legitimately shocked by how many of the stories on a o three under that fandom were exclusively reader insert, oh yeah, it, it was just this shocking thing, like, hold on now, is this all we're writing <laughs> like what, what is this it was just it was an interesting thing to see because um. Yeah, back in the 90s, I never saw that.
1: Well, and you bring up reader insert, the three main categories for Tom Riddle are Tom and Harry, Tom and Hermione, Tom and a reader. No way, really? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So my Tumblr routine is that every morning I load up the Tom Riddle tag, and I load up the Voldemort tag, and I scroll through all the posts that have been made in the past 24 hours to see if there's anything I want to reblog, and... Tons of what I see in the Tom Riddle tag, not the Voldemort tag, is reader insert stories, which I'm not particularly a fan of. And so I've tried to block as many of those tags as I can so they don't interfere with my browsing experience. But yeah, no, it's a huge, huge segment of what's written for the character, which was shocking for me. I was like, <laughs> I don't like, know what this is. What is
0: this? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Yeah, I kind of had that same knee-jerk reaction when I started seeing it blow up everywhere. And it's just an interesting phenomenon to me. I don't personally understand it, and I don't know if it's just the age range that I'm in or whatever. But um, it gives me more anxiety, honestly, to picture myself in the story interacting with these characters.
1: Oh, so that's what I was going to ask you, actually, (laughs) is do you ever project yourself onto a character as you read?
0: No, absolutely not. I love these characters to death. That's the hill I will die on. But I never once have imagined myself romantically involved with any of these characters that I love. For some reason, (laughs) that gives me great anxiety and just is not a good time for me. You know, I would much rather see them interact with other characters, have amazing experiences, introspect on the human experience and all that. I just would really rather not be a part of it.
1: Oh yeah, and so I've had this conversation with friends before, and it always seems to come down to that divide. If you do not like to see yourself in the story at all, reader fic is like the biggest squick for you. You cannot <laughs> take it. I, I'm somewhere in the middle. I like to relate to all the characters in a story. I don't like to relate to one or project myself onto one. I want to be able to relate to everyone in a pairing. And so reader fic doesn't work for me because on the one hand, you have someone who's supposed to be you and it never feels like me. And there's all sorts of like gender issues around that, but that one doesn't work. And then on the other hand is the character I'm probably reading for, right? The canonical character that I'm interested in. And they're supposed to be in love with like just a void, a void of a person. And I can't fall in love with a void of a person. So I can't relate to either side of it. Yeah. Yes, yes, it's
0: <laughs> it's such an interesting phenomenon. You know, one day I think I'll have to bring um a reader insert writer on maybe just to get some perspective on what is so attractive about that because you know, I'm not knocking it, folks. I understand there are a lot of people out there that love that stuff and find a lot of um enjoyment and meaning out of it, and I am very interested to know what is it about that specific genre. One day, I think I'll have to <laughs> bring someone on that can give us some uh, some clarity and perspective on that. I think that would be cool. But, yeah, needless to say, it uh, it's definitely a squig for me, which is saying something because I have no squigs, like, at all. Zero. <laughs> but, yes, if you want to get into the weeds there a little bit with that particular genre, that would definitely be a squig for me. So, But going along with general thoughts on fan fiction. I would love to know your thoughts on fan fiction as a general concept. What makes fan fiction special, worthy of our attention? And I would also love to know if your own personal thoughts on fan fiction have changed and evolved over time.
1: Yeah. I used to think I couldn't write it, and then the pandemic happened, and I got over myself. But- No, fanfiction to me has always been this really interesting cultural artifact that I found amusing or hot or just like a good way to spend more time in a universe that I liked. And I have throughout my life sort of bounced in and out of it, right? As I got excited about something, I would dig into the fandom and then the interest would wane and I would pull back from fandom a little bit. And then a year later, I'd watch a new thing or read a new book and want to go into it. I I should say, I guess I have read a little bit of fan fiction for things I've watched, but mostly books. And I, I just, I think it's really neat that there's this space that is mostly not commercialized for people to engage with media that they like, and we've all just sort of agreed that Yes, we're interested in hearing peers' takes on this universe or these characters or this story over and over again. That there's in many ways there yes, there are hierarchies within fandom. Yes, there are big name fans, but for the most part it's relatively accessible, right? Anyone can get into it, anyone can leave it. You're not bound to it forever. And you can by virtue of being able to sign up for a free account somewhere. It's just gotten more accessible, right? Since the advent of like fanfiction.net and now Archive of Our Own, you don't actually have to put up your own website anymore. You can just put ideas out there, and people will connect with them if they like them, and you can like speak things into the world, and that's really cool. I think that's so cool. I like the fact that there's no bar for entry in terms of like quality or mastery of English or any other language or really anything. You can put utter shit out into the world <laughs> right? And, and people will connect with it and like play in the shit pile with you. And I think that's great. I think there should be more shit piles because this is where like really radical new ideas take root is when there isn't a set of constraints about like decency or spelling or really anything. You can just put stuff out there and and see if it works or not. And if it doesn't like, hey, you can scrap it and move along. As I think as a younger person, I was actually more persnickety about perceived quality. And I think I was also worse at judging perceived quality because I was younger. I think as I've gotten older, I've become more accepting of, like, sometimes the thing that hits you right is the thing that, like, is obviously could have used a beta reader for a pass, but it just, it doesn't matter because, like, you're enjoying it, so who cares? And that's what got me into writing, actually, was I read something and I realized, like, wow, I really loved that story, but it was also just kind of okay like from a technical writing perspective, you know, it just sort of ended when the author very clearly said they'd had enough. The writing was fine, but it wasn't like the prose wasn't anything, you know, mind-blowingly great. But I really enjoyed it. I just loved the story. And I could do that. Like I could write mediocre prose and end it when I get bored. That's within my capabilities. So I might as well write fan fiction too. And so becoming more comfortable with like, sort of The acceptance of mediocrity within fandom was what freed me up to actually begin contributing back.
0: Oh, I love that. I love that because it really does kind of take the pressure off of you as a newer writer to not constrain yourself and be like, oh, it has to be perfect. It has to be this. It has to be that. But just, I don't know, accepting, (laughs) you know, that sometimes, like you said, is sometimes it is a shit pile. Sometimes it is mediocre, but we can still contribute in our own ways. And it doesn't have to be a perfect masterpiece. Oh, I love that. And I love what you said about the egalitarian nature of fanfiction. I feel like that's one of my favorite things is that there is no barrier (laughs) to entry. Anybody can essentially come in and contribute. And I love how fanfiction is in a way sort of like an artistic dialogue that we're having with everybody else, right? Because (laughs) I feel like there are these subtle questions being asked every time somebody creates something and posts it up on the internet, and then somebody else sees that thing, and it inspires something in them. So they respond to it. And then somebody responds to that. And again, and again, and again, and again, and it just goes all around the world. And it's just, it's amazing.
1: Yeah. And and to me, like that conversation is important to have. It's important in that conversation for there to be voices at sort of all levels of engagement, all levels of expertise, everything, right? Because sometimes what gets you excited about writing is the fact that a bunch of people wrote something wrong and you know better, right? That sounds a yes. little bit cruel, <laughs> perhaps. It's certainly spiteful. But <laughs> but this is what's exciting is you go, wow, yeah, I actually know that area well enough to do something correctly for it. Or I don't know it well enough, but I'm just so angry at all of the obvious anachronisms that like, I'm going to research and do a better job of it. <laughs> right, right.
0: Yes, it feels like this giant conversation happening within the community. That we're just all reacting to the original content and then reacting to each other. Right. And yeah, I agree with you. I don't necessarily think it (laughs) it has to be this angry, you know, spiteful thing. But spite fake is a thing. And it cracks me up every time, you know, that people admit, like, Yes, I wrote this series out of spite because
1: (laughs) it's it's the idea that the conversation isn't already filled with people who are so expert and so good and so perfect that you're intimidated away from joining.
0: Yeah, yeah. I love that. I love that, that all voices, all voices we do. We need them. It's just it's wonderful that people get to share their own experiences and their own takes and their own perspectives because I feel like it makes a richer world that we all get to play in in the end. So (laughs) that's what it's been like for me anyway. So you talked about your early involvement with Harry Potter, reading the Harry Potter books, and it sounds like you were still maybe a teenager when that was happening, is that fair?
1: Yes, that's fair.
0: Okay, so, (laughs) so I have to ask you, when you first encountered those Harry Potter books as a teenager, did you find yourself more drawn to the teenage characters from the Harry Potter franchise? Or was it the
1: adults or a mix of both? Honestly, I cared about the plot, which is, I, it feels a little dorky to say now, given that I'm obviously so far away from the plot <laughs> as my my mode of engagement. Yeah, But no, when I was growing up and I was reading the Harry Potter books, the thing that stood out to me that you would, like, get on the phone to talk to your friends about after each new release was, like, what happened? What clues do we have? What's going to happen next? And so, though I read Harry Potter fanfiction, I certainly read about, like, Snape because he was cool. I read about Hermione. I didn't really super connect with Harry or Ron. I liked that sort of stuff, but it didn't hit me the same way that, like, Phantom of the Opera did. Because the thing that was exciting and captivating was where is this story going to go? Not so much like who are these characters and what makes them tick. And that might have been because the character that I ended up connecting with is one that I just wasn't ready to appreciate at the time. I, that's absolutely fair. I think a lot of people
0: could probably relate to what you said just because um characters aside, the plot of Harry Potter, in my opinion, is very interesting. It begs a lot of questions, and I will admit right now that my understanding of that plot and the subtext of that plot and the context has changed dramatically and keeps changing. In fact, being exposed here through this interview and through reading your fan fiction, (laughs) reading some of the things that the Tom Riddle-centric folks have been saying about the Voldemort character, has given me, again, a whole new fresh perspective on the plot of Harry Potter. I'm so grateful for that because, you know, sometimes you uh, you think you have everything all figured out and you think you know what the story is about. And then somebody comes in with a wrecking ball and just kind of throws some new shit at you. So like, I'm so, so excited to talk about Tom Riddle's place in this universe here. Because like I said, We have never covered a show talking about the villain of the story, but the villains are often just as important as any other character, at least in the media that I have encountered. A lot of times the villains tend to be these one-dimensional archetype characters, and they're sort of like useful tools to antagonize the protagonist, and they're not necessarily entirely fleshed out. And one of the things that I really appreciated, of course, about your fanfiction that we'll be talking about today is the opportunity to have that character fleshed out for me in a way that I had never experienced before. Super, super fascinating. I also had the chance to read through your, your Tumblr page, which you have the most amazing meta posts on there, by the way, about Voldemort and Tom Riddle and his place in the Harry Potter universe. And the way that it was presented in so many of these different posts that you curate there on your Tumblr feed, I just blew me away because I had never before considered so many of these things, especially Voldemort sort of being a catalyst for change, like a revolutionary catalyst in a way I had never considered him in that role before. So I was hoping that you could talk to us a little bit about where your interest in Tom Riddle and Voldemort began. What are the most compelling parts about his character for you in particular? And what is that contextual relationship between Voldemort's story with the rest of the wizarding world that we're already familiar with?
1: Yeah, I think it's a shame you haven't had a villain fucker on before. We are a large and important part of fandom, so glad to represent. Yes, absolutely. (laughs) So I I got to Tom through Severus because... I, as I mentioned, I was, I thought Severus Snape's character was very cool. Just think he's like an interesting, you know, complicated part of the world. He's, he's great, but he's a good guy. And like, I have friends who love the idea of like, but what if he just was bad the entire time? (laughs) Right. Um, And I think, I think that's really fun to engage with, but like in the books, he's a good guy, right? He's gray. He's, he's a little, you know, you're a little unsure, but then he turns out good. But there's this pipeline, I like to think of it, that people follow in order to get to Tom Riddle. Because you generally don't start, he's just not a big enough part of the books that you would usually, most people would like start out thinking like, yes, I'm all in about Tom Riddle, Voldemort's character. And the pipeline is something like this. You have your Golden Trio era character that you will read stories about. For me, it happened to be Hermione. For a lot of people, it's Harry. For some people, it's Snape directly, but usually it's, like, Harry or Hermione. And if you're, like, a, you know, you're not a villain type, then you probably ship them with, I don't know who non-villain type ship with, like, Cedric or some shit? <laughs> yeah, good. yeah, I've seen that one before, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, like, you ship them with someone good. Sure. If you don't do that, if you're into more of, the, like, the, the dark, dangerous men then you're going to start out shipping Hermione or Harry with either Draco or Snape. Right? Yes,
0: I see that all the time.
1: And I uh, I started out with Hermione and Snape, and at some point you will like read all the big stories, and you'll be looking for a little more variety, and you already like the sort of like dark, dangerous men thing, and some author will have. A work, some author you like will have a work that does Harry or Hermione with Tom Riddle. Usually with Tom, not with Voldemort. And there's often a distinction. Right. Okay. And so you'll go like, well, I do like this author, so I'll give it a try. And it'll probably be a slightly softer version of Tom Riddle. Probably there's a redemption arc in there. But it'll get you thinking. It'll go like, oh, you know, hey, this is neat. There's some like time travel stuff. It's a different era, like a breath of fresh air. And then you'll start exploring that ship, and that's how you get to Tom Riddle. Is there's this whole progression from like I'm interested in one of the main Golden Trio characters, and I want to see like what sort of like bad men there are um, <laughs> to ship them with, until you get to finally you end up at like Tom or Voldemort.
0: So it's like this trail of breadcrumbs for most people. Yes, <laughs> yes, yes. That is so, so interesting. Wow. Okay. No, that makes sense, though. That makes sense that most people probably wouldn't start out just being like, oh, Tom, so great, you know, but that it would be this progressive
1: journey. Right. Because as you say, and I think the Tom Riddle character perfectly falls into this, he is a one-dimensional archetype. He is written to be such, and you don't really... Have any encouragement to think of him as anything else because he's a bad man who's like vaguely a Nazi analog. I've got issues with that for real life reasons, but he's like vaguely a Nazi analog, and he's, I, you know, he's like got a terrible identity based prejudice as the basis of his entire existence. So, like, why the fuck would you connect to that? When you're books? <laughs>
0: right, right, right. You would feel strange about that. I think.
1: But but you get to that first author who makes you think like, oh, well, yeah, I guess if he were like 16 and he maybe has only killed Myrtle, maybe there's like a chance that he didn't turn out so bad if things went a little differently, like if he had a good influence in his life in the form of Hermione or Harry. And then you start thinking about it, right? And you go down this path of like, Okay, so he's a half blood and he has a muggle last name in Riddle and he was sorted into Slytherin. And from what we see of the universe, he's probably going to get bullied for that, right? So you start thinking, like, okay, so like maybe he eventually rises to have influence over his peers, but probably his first years at school, at the very least, his first years at school weren't so great because he would have been bullied for being like, Presumably this muggle-born kid in a house full of purebloods who all believe in pureblood supremacy. And then you start thinking, well, but then he didn't, he had a really shitty job after school. He worked as like a clerk in the world's shadiest pawn store. And so you go, well, that's strange. Like if he was really super powerful in school and he like commanded the respect of all these purebloods who were his peers, why did he have such a shit job? And he worked it for like a long time. I know that when I started out, I didn't really have a sense of the timeline, but then I did some digging into, you know, the Harry Potter wikia and all that. And you find out the the dates are malleable as with most things in the Harry Potter universe. There's the implication that he didn't leave the UK to go on his grand journey of the continent until at least the mid 1950s, like at least. Oh, really? Yeah. Which means that he would have been working this job for, like, a decade, roughly. That's a long time to work a job that you hate. It's a long time to work a job that you hate, that has no prestige or prominence within the community, that, like, is is considered essentially, like, a shitty, shady (laughs) type of, you know, job for nobodies. Absolutely, yeah. This is a person who supposedly is all about power and influence and being impressive, right? And so you just like the entire narrative of him as this like evil, terrible person who's always had a stable of like adoring followers that he commands ruthlessly begins to fall apart as you spend more time, even just in his young years, his like teens and immediately after graduating Hogwarts. This idea begins to fall apart. And so, though he's written as this one dimensional archetype of a villain, bad guy who is prejudiced against people based on, you know, inherent identity characteristics, right? Easy to hate. You dig into it and you're like, but he would have faced the same prejudice that he's perpetuating. Yeah,
0: absolutely. That would have been very formative for him in his youth.
1: Right. And then you add to it the timing of events in our world. World War II was going on while he was in school. The Depression was going on while he was a child at the orphanage. He was raised in an orphanage. He's making his way through post war Britain on again, like presumably not a great salary because his job isn't that great. So, like, what are his living conditions like? Does the wizarding world have rationing the same way that like post war Britain did? And it's just this huge mess of like, oh my God, this guy's life was shit. And then he comes back and he starts his war in roughly 1970. People seem to agree on that as vaguely the timeline for the start of the first war. When he's like 45, not that 45 is a bad age for anything you want to do in life, but it's a weird age to call, like, I don't know, the start of your grand plans, right? (laughs) Right, right. And it really does show that he
0: didn't jump right out of you know school as this like super villain dark lord type figure so yeah no that's fascinating that he was he was a little older when he started
1: you know causing yes yes so what i saw as i got further into this is not the story of like you know your dark fuck prince who's like 23 and super hot and like really dangerous and killing people left and right Which is, I think, where a lot of, to be fair, a lot of the, like, shipping for Tom Riddle stays. It's exciting to imagine him as such. But the further I got into it, I was like, no, he's not, like, hot and young and dangerous. He is older and he's tired and he's disappointed (laughs) with how his life has gone. Yeah, a little bitter at at this point. (laughs) He's bitter. He's starting a war mostly out of spite for, like, an old school teacher. He's using people who hated him in school and supposedly nobody knows who he is. So you've got to imagine there's some like deeply buried anger for his own treatment as a child. Yeah. Like, this is exciting. This is great. This isn't a flat villain. <laughs> right. 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 And, you know,
0: that's actually kind of impressive when you think about that, because I think of the age I'm at now, you know, and I'm around that age range. And the thought of starting something that big at my age makes me so tired. Just thinking about right. it, because the networking alone that would be required to make it successful, I don't even have the energy for that. I don't know how to even get started. So the fact that he was just like, yeah, all right, let's do it, that's impressive to me as oh we're my talking God, about this. right? It's like, oh my God. It's super
1: impressive. <laughs> yeah. But it's also. The, one of the first things that occurred to me as I got deeper down this rabbit hole was like, of course all of his followers are 20 years younger than him because he can't actually recruit his peers. They've got jobs and families. They're <laughs> yeah. rich. Like, they're not going to join as like weekend warriors for overthrowing the government that they run. <laughs> oh my God,
0: I don't know why that's so funny, but it is. <laughs> that's such a great point though. That's such a great point that his own peers and his own age range would probably be like, Nah, brah. Nah. Right. You know, I've nah. got to take no the way. kids to, to the park on the weekend. I'm not going to do this with you.
1: <laughs> oh, my God. That's so great. I love that. Please continue. This is great. <laughs> so, so the idea of him as this, like, you know, your, your sort of classical, like, dark, scary, handsome villain just absolutely falls to pieces the more that you prod at it. And that is wonderful. Like, that is so much more exciting to me than yet another, like, hot, dark dude that's here to, you know, be your enemy hero, villain hero ship. And because those are, those are fun. Like, that's a tropey fun type of construct. But more fun to me is this person who is falling apart at the seams and trying to run a war anyway. And it's, like, definitely 20 years past when this would have made any sense for him. Yeah, And he manages to make something of it, and it, like, almost succeeds, right? We're kind of told that that it was really a scary time to be alive, because it seemed like everyone was on Voldemort's side, and that he was going to win up until the moment that he loses to a baby. But, like, the idea that he really did, through force of will, like, manage to make something out of this, despite all of the factors working against him... Is so much more compelling to me than if he had just been super successful because, you know, because he's naturally fantastic at everything he tries or something, right? That, like, he can be given to us as one of the most intelligent and magically powerful characters in the series. And yet, that isn't enough to overcome sort of the prejudices that are inherent in the wizarding society. And he still has to fight against them in order to do what he's doing. Which is what makes him, in my mind, this force of revolutionary change, to bring back to that part of your question, is that he's not a good person. We know he murders. We know he's okay with murder. We know that he uses torture. We know that, like, he's doing bad things, right? But he's doing all those things and with them attempting to change the structure of the society in which he lives just by definition, that's revolutionary, right? It doesn't matter if I agree with the way that he would reimagine the world, so much as that he has done something, he's made strides towards changing the world that he lives in. And I think that this is just, like, the final piece that flips the script on the novels for me, is that Voldemort, for all that his rhetoric and his platform as it exists seems to be the sort of regressive traditionalist force is actually the only person who's saying, and in what I aim to do, I will change the way our society works versus the heroic forces in the series, which again, like have the internal moral goodness for them. That's the whole point is like, These characters, the Dumbledore, the Harry Potter, whatever of the series, they like, they believe in things like not murdering people (laughs) and equality. And that's great. That's good for them. But the way that they envision this existing is in the preservation of the same society that birthed Voldemort.
0: Yes, yes, yes. That was a revolutionary concept to me when I was reading that on some of the meta posts that you had on your Tumblr feed. You know, my experience with Harry Potter was different than yours. And this is embarrassing to admit, but I was more attached to a few of the characters than I was to the actual plot of the story. So my whole experience with Harry Potter, and it's been a long one, you know, I've been reading Harry Potter stuff for a really long time. I have never really given that much critical thought to the actual plot or the actual world of Harry Potter. So I'm reading these meta posts that you've curated and these posts are pointing out the problems with the traditional Wizarding World Society in England. These posts are pointing to the fact that there is slavery. There's oppression of you know certain sectors of, of magical folks. There's a corrupt government. There's a caste system. I mean, there's all of these crazy things where I guess I just sort of glossed over all of that shit when I was reading Harry Potter for the first time and didn't realize like, oh, these are problematic things that exist in traditional wizarding society. And it never occurred to me that in the act of trying to stop Voldemort from doing what he was doing, you're actually, in a sense, trying to preserve that status quo. You're preserving the system that upholds the slavery and the oppression and the corruption and all of that stuff. And I was just like, <gasps> when I read that, like oh, my God. Not that it makes Voldemort the good guy
1: in my brain at all. No, no, he's not. He's, he's definitely not. still the bad guy.
0: Yeah, he's definitely still not a good guy. but. I understand now what at least he was trying to do or what he was at least bitter against when you consider that that is the society that he's living in. And he's just tired of it. He's tired and bitter. It reminds me a little bit of, um, have you ever, have you ever watched Breaking Bad? Yes. (laughs) That's what the story reminds me of, just a little bit. You know, a middle-aged dude that's just so tired of being shit on. And he he just wants to feel, I don't know, powerful or in control of something. So he builds this empire. And he's not a great guy. But we still kind of root for him anyway, because there's just something there that makes you want to connect with the story and the character. That's what this reminds me of a little bit.
1: Yeah, actually funny, because my Voldemort definitely wears briefs. <laughs>
0: yes. <laughs> yes, yes, that is so true. And he sort of has like a... You know, a code name for his villainous alter ego.
1: <laughs> no, I, I agree. It's it's the fun of rooting for somebody who is bad and you know is bad, but at the very least they're like an agent of change.
0: Yes. Right. Yes. That was the first time I had ever considered that. That Voldemort, for all of the like crazy shit we don't like him for, at least he was an agent for change for something to change.
1: And sometimes what you're looking for, at least for me in a story, is the excitement of the idea that things can change, right? It doesn't matter what direction that change is, the fact that there can be movement, as opposed to just more stagnation, more of the same. And J.K.R. gets rightful criticism for the epilogue of the Harry Potter series, where everybody grows up and has kids with their high school sweetheart and they're all going to Hogwarts and like, things are fine, but apparently Slytherin is still a stigmatized house. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Rightful criticism there. But I, I think that, you know, at the root of a lot of that is just the idea that, yeah, what would have been really exciting for us to see is like, Harry who, I don't know, like, has abandoned the wizarding world in some capacity, or or has, like, rejected its traditional structures, or has rejected the sort of, like, het normality enforced... I, obviously, that wasn't going to happen, but, <laughs> right, um, right. but it would have been exciting to see some rejection of the things that were so overbearing during the entire, like, course of telling those stories. Um, and Voldemort is really the only character who does that in a substantial way, And we don't see that much of him. So that's what makes fan fiction a really fruitful space for, you know, Voldemort and Tom Riddle's character is like, what could it possibly have felt like to be one of the few people that doesn't just, you know, encounter this world and immediately conform to it and accept all of its strictures?
0: Right, right. He questioned it enough to want to do something. I do think that that's really interesting. Your point about Harry Potter, as you were talking about that, I was thinking it is interesting because Harry Potter's generation, canonically speaking, these are millennials. Harry and his uh, compatriots at school are millennials. And in our real life society, the millennial generation, I mean, it hasn't been perfect, but I feel like (laughs) the millennial generation has in a sense, tried to turn some of these things on their head in our real life society. So that is odd to me that in the wizarding world, the wizarding millennial generation would not have at least tried to do the same, if that makes sense. I don't know if I'm making any sense there. Yeah,
1: no, it, it does. And I mean, part of it, right, is the series ended in 2007. So sure, millennials were a lot, we were a lot younger then. And had made less of these changes. <laughs> Very uh, true. Who knows? That is true. Who knows what the series would look like if it ended now? Right. right. What Harry right. Potter's generation would have done. And and I think for the people who really love like Harry and his peer characters, fan fiction doesn't look like the books. Usually, it usually does give him more agency and make him more of a, a vector for change. So there's absolutely, I'd say, within the fandom a recognition that like things need to change it's not just the Voldemort fans who are like this society was fucked <laughs> um, right right but i think that there's there's something that's inherent to villains in most series that like the villains often are the way that change is introduced into the world it's usually not or often not the heroes and that's what feels very exciting about like being a villain shipper or being a fan of villains is like you are jumping into a series from the perspective of like how can we tear this world apart versus from the perspective of like how can we preserve everyone's safety and it's it's just very freeing to be like no i like the forces that are here to cause chaos and to reimagine the universe Rather than trying to like justify or rewrite the heroes so that actually they do have a change of heart and they do want to change the universe like somewhere else along the way,
0: Yeah, oh, and I love that aspect of fan fiction, where it does give us that ability to explore the darker, more forbidden parts of stories and characters that we wouldn't be able to really explore otherwise, because I agree with you. I think that these things are worth exploring especially characters like these that really have the potential to be so complicated and so interesting. So I'm so glad that I had the opportunity to kind of dive in to this world with you with your fan fiction story. Before we get into the story here, which we will hear in just a, in just a moment, but I was curious about the, the Not Senior character, because um, it seems that you and a lot of others enjoy shipping Tom Riddle with Not Senior. Oh, no, it's, it's actually just me. Oh, oh, is it just you? Okay. okay. It's, it's literally just me. <laughs> well, I loved it, though. I loved it. It was wonderful. I'm wondering, why is Not Senior your favorite character to pair Tom Riddle with? the
1: very basic answer is i it was an accident but the the real answer is more along the lines of and actually uh, someone encouraged me to write a ship manifesto about this back in the spring of 2021 they were like yeah no one does this anymore but you should write a ship manifesto so i did and the exciting part of this ship that i've created is putting Voldemort with someone who is his same age who is a peer because there's a recognition that Voldemort or Tom is a tricky character to pair off because he's very intense he's very intelligent and he's very powerful and because he's not the nicest of people in canon he is not shown with like a real love interest or any particular interest in the idea of love or affection that's kind of like a defining trait for him is that he may or may not actually be able to feel love, uh, romantic love of any sort. So you have to ask, like, well, who's going to cause him to, like, think about the concept of love more? Who's going to give him pause and make him reevaluate that stance? And with uh, Harry or Hermione, who are not my ships of choice, often the answer is, well, but this version of Harry or Hermione is an equal to him right? We've like bumped up their power level so that they're equivalently magically powerful, or they're like just as book smart as he is. And that's so impressive that he's like blown over and he decides to like pursue them with a single minded fascination. But the issue I have with Harry or Hermione is that they're heroes. And even in dark fic, they tend to still preserve their like values. They don't tend to like Decide that blood purity was like an okay, like an or an understandable thing for him to use as the basis for his gaining of power, right? Like, they still have to judge him in some way. Like, Harry or Hermione always judges him and finds him insufficient, and he has to change as a person. He has to, like, admit that he was wrong and that, like, he shouldn't have done those things and he's sorry, actually, and stuff like that, right? Right, right. Even if he's not redeemed, even if he stays bad. There's usually this element of, like, he was wrong, though. Like, he can be bad, but he also has to admit that he was wrong. And I think that this comes from the fact that they tend to have baggage, right? Like, Harry or Hermione usually gets paired with him through time travel, or he's just he's much older than them, and it happens in the canon timeline. So they know his entire history as Voldemort, like, throughout the entire time they've even been conscious as people and it's just so much burden for a character to bear and i don't think that you can really set up the type of relationship that i find interesting as the subject of a story with that much baggage around it with not senior who's one of his oldest followers who's implied to have been like a peer of his in school who is a seemingly an acquaintance or friend of his when he kind of returns to britain and goes about trying to interview for the defense against the dark arts position at Hogwarts the second time. There are these connections where you realize, like, okay, so not would have had to have been aware of who Tom Riddle was, which means he probably knows Voldemort is Tom Riddle, or at least he's figured it out. He probably, like, accepts that this guy's a half-blood, despite being a pureblood himself, and he's, like, okay with this. So there's some degree of, like, not being a blood purist in his own right, as far as not goes. And he's lived through, like, all of Tom's life stages. He's lived through, like, Tom being an awkward, dorky teenager. He's lived through, like, Tom being this nobody shop clerk. He's lived through Tom being a warlord. He has his own life and his own things are going on, like, whatever his career has looked like, whatever his schooling has looked like, whatever his adulthood has looked like. He's had his own life experiences. so he's going to be able to relate to Tom, not just as, like, the figure of Voldemort, the big scary warlord person. He's going to be able to relate to Tom as, like, as a peer. Yeah, as a person. Right. He doesn't have to get over the Voldemort baggage. <laughs> right, right, right.
0: It sounds like that fundamental compatibility is there.
1: Yes. Yeah, it's It's just and he's a blank slate character, right? He doesn't exist. He doesn't even have a first name in canon. I completely cop to, this is me making a character in the shape of someone who's like vaguely mentioned in canon that I want to see paired off with this character. But that's what it is. I want, I want somebody who is of the same age, of the relative same like set of life experiences, who has known this person over time and so who can relate to Voldemort or Tom like throughout his life and who doesn't come with this like moralizing need to say that Tom was wrong to do any of the things that he's done. Who's not there to like impose judgment and become the like the moral compass for Tom's character.
0: Yeah, I didn't feel like Tom really needed to make any like huge changes to his Underlying character, I guess. Let's say to be with not, you know, because not loves him anyway and is going to accept all that stuff, and uh, and I think that they're going to be able to relate. You know, it seems like in the story they relate so well on those levels. So it's not just an acceptance, but it's like the relatability is there in a way that I I agree with you. He would not be able to find that I think with anybody else, (laughs) Uh, especially if if we're going to see him paired off with some of the um the hero characters. So. I loved that in your stories, it's not, you know, we were talking a little bit before the show about how we really love to see those older characters paired together because the life experiences are similar and compatible. And it just seems like there's a much richer field to draw from, especially, I think, emotionally speaking. Tell us about your fanfiction, Made of Clay. This is your Tom Riddle, not senior fanfiction. It's a multi-chapter. Absolutely amazing story. I loved every second of reading this story. And I was wondering what inspired you to tell this particular story. And what themes and ideas are you exploring here with this piece?
1: So I had this idea for the story initially without Harry in it. And I should say that the the story made of clay includes four main characters. Tom, obviously, not senior, is his romantic partner the character Theodore Knott, who is a boy in Harry's year in the books, but is not really expanded upon other than being not senior's son and being in Slytherin. And Harry Potter. And I I initially had this idea to write the story with just Tom, Knott, and Theodore as a family story. And I was coming off of sort of like a low engagement period. I'd written a pairing of Tom and Not just before this that obviously did not get much engagement because it's a blank slate character and a villain. And I was like, God, I just, I just don't know if I can do another story where I have like one commenter per chapter. So what can I throw in that will bring a little bit more attention? Like, you know, the right tags to this, that people might click on it. And I said, well, people like stories where someone raises Harry and like a better life. And so like, what if, what if Tom just, what if Voldemort just stole Harry instead of killing him? What if he just like abducted this kid? I already was going to have a kid in there, like, because not senior already has a canonical child. And I had... You know, I wanted the idea of two older men reconnecting after some years apart and trying to make a relationship actually work this time with a child in the mix as a complicating factor. And there was a symmetry to the idea of not coming in with his own son and Tom having a son as well, and both of them as single fathers. So there's a symmetry in that. Both of these men are older single fathers who have been living, raising their kids on their own for years now, and had sort of given up on the idea of really anything more than that in their personal lives. And then, not here's this rumor that Voldemort, who he knew as a boy as Tom Riddle, is still alive. He's still out there. And he loved him before. And he has this stupid idea to upend his entire life and his son's life and go like figure out if this is true. He's got nothing else going on for him. He's like, this is it. This is, I'm going to throw everything into pursuing the ghost of this man across an ocean. And when he gets there and he finds not just that Tom is alive, but that Tom is raising the boy who supposedly he killed eight years ago. Like he has no idea what to make of it. The whole journey is like, what is authentic about Tom's life? What role can there be for a romantic partner in the life that he's made for himself? What does he want anymore? Like, what has become of Voldemort as a persona, as an ideal, versus like Tom Riddle as a sort of a living person? And I don't normally like Harry Potter. (laughs) <laughs> uh, I, I try to I try to avoid him in my writing for the most part, yeah. but something just really clicked into place when I gave Harry to Tom as a son. And the entire idea spins out from there. It's like, what would it mean for Voldemort to be a dad, to have to be a father? How would that look? Could he do it well? How would that change him as a person in taking that on? Yes, yes. I
0: have some follow-up questions. As you're talking, it made me wonder because I was so fascinated by not senior, like you said, uprooting his entire life, going all the way across an ocean to a different country to try to track Tom down. And it did make me wonder, do you think that he went there initially just for closure purposes or did he have some subconscious like romantic intentions? I've always been curious after reading this story about what exactly Nott was thinking or trying to accomplish by coming all the way to America to try to track Tom down in the first place.
1: Yeah, I think to put myself in Nott's mind at that point in time, I think he didn't expect it to be real. I think that he hoped, I think he had hoped for, you know, the seven years since Voldemort disappeared, that he was still out there somewhere. but. I don't think he expected it to actually be genuine. He just never thought that he would get to have this. And the backstory for them is that they were involved in a romantic relationship during the 70s, during the First War, when Voldemort was Voldemort, and he was not acknowledging that he used to be Tom Riddle, and not knew the entire time. Because how would he not know he's having sex with this person? He sees his face. But, like, Voldemort has sort of deluded himself that his physical appearance has changed enough and, you know, he's secretive enough that, like, no one actually knows that this sexual arrangement between them isn't actually meaningful, even though it's lasted, like, a decade, and that he's able to just move on. And he kind of does. Like, he does successfully leave and raise a child for seven years in a different country without, like going back to that period of his life. But I don't think not ever really gets over it. And his whole life, since 1970 or so, when he gets involved with Voldemort, has been, like, circling around Voldemort. He loves the man. He's totally taken with him to the point of, like, doing things that are somewhat self-destructive, Right. He gets married and has a child as a cover for his sort of lack of involvement with the Death Eater organization is his backstory. So he takes a wife that he doesn't want because Voldemort has commanded it. He has a child that he does not want because Voldemort has commanded it. And then his wife dies prematurely, just unfortunate thing that happens, and he's left with a son that he has to raise on his own, and he's got nothing that ties him to Britain anymore. He does not care. And he's sort of drifting, not as a great father, not as a particularly involved member of society. And the wizarding world that Voldemort has left behind has gone to pieces, more so than in like the canon, more so in, than in other things that I write. This, this particular version of magical Britain is essentially a police state. So he doesn't care. And he hears this rumor and he's like, Fuck it. I'm already sort of imploding everything. I'm gonna drag my son across the Atlantic Ocean, go to upstate New York, and see if this rumor is really true. And he kind of can't believe that it works out. I mean, if he fails, then what? He goes back after, like, a weird extended vacation in nowhere America. Great. But it didn't. It was real. And that's... that's the entire... Starting point for us is oh my god, this thing you thought would never happen has actually happened. Yeah,
0: oh, and I loved that you started it there because it really grabs the attention right away, which was really great for me because, uh, you know, this was the first Tom Riddle centric <laughs> fanfiction that I'd ever read. Background wise, I am probably lacking here, but I felt like the story grabbed me immediately and I understood what was happening. And it was just so fascinating because you really do such a wonderful job of making Tom and not both individual separate characters. And so just watching them both separately as their own individual people was just so amazing. I loved it. And I always did have that question about not like, wow, that's pretty risky, right? (laughs) Taking your kid and just like running off to America. But yeah, I can absolutely see that, that for him, the risk was worth it because what did he have to lose anyway? If what's there for him at home is not making him happy, (laughs) then, uh, you know, I probably would have done the same thing then just kind of exploring it from his shoes. But I also had a question about Tom and Harry. Yes. So we know that (laughs) the first war ends, right? And in your story, he kidnaps little Harry Potter instead of killing him. And my understanding is that he did not kill him because he was afraid that if he did, it would sort of bounce back on him and kill him in the process, right? Yes. So in your story, he needed the time to do research to figure out, how can I kill this kid without it adversely affecting my own mortality? right? Yeah. And so, as I was reading this story, it made me wonder at the time. That Tom takes Harry because he's killed Harry's parents. So he takes Harry. At that time, is he fully intending to return back to England at some point to continue what he started with being Voldemort? And then does the experience of being Harry's father completely change that trajectory for him? I was just very curious about if he started out that whole process with a certain set of intentions and then those intentions. Maybe they changed. I don't know. Did they?
1: Yeah. No. I I think you've nailed it. He thought I need some time to do some research so that I can murder Harry Potter. And this is this is Voldemort. He intends to kill the baby. He looks at this eighteen-month-old toddler and he's like, "Hey, you've been prophesized to be my downfall. So you gotta go, kid." There's no there's no sentimentality. There's no like, I can't kill a baby. No, it's just pure practical. Like, the premise for this idea of kidnapping Harry versus attempting to murder him in his crib comes from me thinking, but what if Voldemort was just, like, a little bit more cautious? Just, like, a just enough more cautious that he noticed something was off and didn't go for the killing curse right away. But nothing else has changed. He's just a slightly more cautious Voldemort. And so he thinks, I'm gonna take this kid I'm gonna hold on to it for like six months or three months. He doesn't think it's gonna take that long, right? Until I figure out how to undo the magical protections that are surrounding him. And then I'll murder him, and then I'll get back to the war thing. And he recognizes that he can't bring this baby back to, like, I don't know, wherever he's been living before this. Because he can't really run a war and do this research. Like, it's just too much. And Voldemort, my Voldemort, at the very least, is just not that interested in the day-to-day work of actually being the leader of like a government. This is very much based on the seventh book, where he does control the ministry, but he like, is fucking around in Europe looking for a wand for an entire year. <laughs>
0: right. He, he leaves the governing to others.
1: <laughs> right. So I think that it, his mindset is just like, it's fine. I've got other people who... Like, I've already delegated all the major tasks to, I'll just, like, be back in three months once I've killed this baby, right? Except it takes longer. It takes longer, and it turns out that if you are trying to make sure that you can kill a baby the right way so that it doesn't bounce back on you, then you have to be concerned with things like making sure the baby is fed, because maybe if it starves to death, that still counts, and, like, you still get discorporated somehow, so he has to take care of the baby by feeding it, which means that he also has to, like, have some sort of schedule so that the baby is being fed at regular hours, so that involves, like, nap times, yeah. and bed times, and then when the baby is awake, it needs, like, coddling, because otherwise it cries, which is really distracting if you're trying to do research. Exactly. Yes. So you have to, like, put the baby on your lap and, like, play with it, and after like, I don't know, a year or two of this, he starts going, oh, shit, I love this baby. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Yeah, that was the impression that I got. Because there is a chapter in there where you sort of describe this journey of him not being attached at all to Harry Potter when he first, you know, kidnaps him. But then slowly over time, as he's caring for this baby on a day-to-day basis something seems to happen emotionally with him there's this one part i think where you describe harry potter being scared i think because of some sort of nightmare or something happens where he's afraid and he's looking up at tom like looking up at him for protection and that seems to like do something emotionally for tom it was just so interesting. Maybe I'm reading too much into it, but that almost seems like the point where he's like, oh shit, you know, <laughs> like, <I> oh <don't> no.
1: <laughs> I think you're right. I, I don't think, and again, this is totally down to how you interpret a particular character, but when I write Tom Riddle, I throw out the assumption that he can't feel love. I, I think it's stupid. And so he's, he's a bad man who does all the same bad things, but I have said yes He is perfectly capable of the full range of human emotions, including love. And I just don't know that it's possible to care for a child's every need for, you know, years and not start to feel some form of like responsibility and affection for that child. I think that's Voldemort's like ultimate downfall in this is that he's. My Tom thinks that he is going to be able to, like, survive that cognitive dissonance. (laughs) Right.
0: Yeah, yeah. Like, he thought that at the end of all that research that he was just going to be able to do it, and it turns out that he was wrong. (laughs) Right. Emotionally, he just couldn't after a certain point, which I thought was so super interesting. It made me wonder, and here's another question for you. But it made me wonder if Tom changed, like some fundamental part of his character changed. Because I I do believe that people are capable of change. Not that they always do, but that that's a possibility, right? So Mm -hmm. I'm wondering, in your opinion, did Tom change or did he simply find something that he loved more? then war and chaos and all of that stuff that he did as Voldemort.
1: I think this goes back to what we were saying about his age. He starts his first war when he's around 44, 45 years old. And then he is at war for a decade. And what that war looks like is up to interpretation. I personally believe there's a ramping up. I write it typically as like, there's not any physical violence until maybe the last few years but he's been running a war for a decade by the time that he confronts harry in any version of the of the story and in mine you know he kidnaps harry he starts raising him and when he Reaches the conclusion to his research when he solves the problem and he has the solution that would allow him to murder Harry Potter and not have any negative impacts on his own mortality. He's 60 years old. He's somewhere around 60 years old. And I just think he'd be very tired. I think that he, at that point, would be able to look back and say, what was it I wanted to accomplish with this war? I kind of did that. I mean, I could do more. There's always more. There's always more that you can put into something. But I I did kind of achieve my goal. And I've been kind of enjoying these past couple of years of not running a war. It's a lot more relaxing. I am responsible for a child, and that's work. But I've come to enjoy raising this kid. I kind of like my life here as it's quiet, you know? Maybe I can just... Call that whole chapter of my life, the thing where I was Voldemort and my goal was to upend Magical Britain, and say, Yeah, I, I did it. Like, check, it's finished. This is a new chapter for me. Not that I have to, like, say that I regret anything or that I wish I hadn't done it or, or really, you know, any sort of reevaluation of my priorities at the time. Just, I wasn't a father then and I had different priorities. Yeah, that's what I found very fascinating about this fic is
0: as far as I remember it as I was reading through it, I don't recall any parts where Voldemort is particularly sorry for anything no. that he did, you know. <laughs> he is never sorry. Yeah, no. it's not like, "Oh, I regret. Oh, I'm so gu- I feel so guilty." It was n- never anything like that, you know. It just seemed to me that his priorities just changed because Harry's in the picture and Tom has decided that he really rather likes being a father. I felt like maybe he had just found that peace in his life finally through fatherhood that maybe he had been searching for before. And now there's no need to return back to his old life as Voldemort because he seems like he's found peace.
1: Yes. Yeah. No, I try to write when I write Tom. I try to write contentment for him as his happy ending, right? Like, I don't know that it's a personality that can find, like, joy and happiness as some sort of enduring quality, but I think he can find peace. I think he can learn to be satisfied. And that's, that's where he's at in, in this, is accepting that, like, he's done the thing that he set out to do with Voldemort, and that he's allowed to let that go.
0: Yeah, Absolutely. Absolutely. It was really, really just fascinating. And it brought up so many questions for me as I was, I was reading it. But I love that. I love reading literature that asks subtle questions in the subtext. That's one of my favorite things. <laughs> Maybe I'm just like an endlessly curious person. I don't know. But it was very fascinating to watch. One of my favorite themes of this, this whole work is the fatherhood theme. Because you have the fatherhood experience happening with Tom Riddle. You have it happening with not senior. And I loved that you incorporated, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? It's very common, I think, for parents to feel inadequate, right? <laughs> In certain aspects yes. of parenting, right? I've never been a parent. I have to you know, state that upfront, never been a parent. I never will be. But <laughs> I, I was my sister's legal guardian for a year. That was the closest I ever got. And the unexpected feelings of inadequacy that suddenly bombarded my brain that year, were completely unexpected, and I noticed those themes in this fic as well, which I absolutely loved because I, I feel like from the people that I've talked to who have children, inadequacy <laughs> seems to be this universal feeling. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the fatherhood journeys for these two characters and how you sort of incorporated that into this piece.
1: I'd never written kid fic before this. I I didn't like kid fic before this, and. I had backed myself into this premise, and I have this philosophy when it comes to writing that if I'm going to do something, I'm going to do it wholeheartedly when I got into writing fan fiction, I was like, I have to write explicit sex scenes i can't I enjoy reading them. I will not allow myself to not write explicit sex scenes just because of my own like squeamishness around publishing this sort of content, and so I was writing a kid fic, I was going to write kids, I was going to write parenting, the kids were going to have to be main characters, if I was going to be satisfied. And the fatherhood just really snuck up on me as like, so central to the identities of these two men. Because I thought, you know, I wanted a romance, I wanted it to be a romance between these two as older adults. But they had kids in the way. And so they had to reckon with what it meant to be parents first, that children come first. And so there are conversations throughout between both fathers and their own children, where they reassure their kids, you're the most important thing in my life. Like, yes, I love this man. Yes, this is like, I am pursuing a relationship with him. But you are the thing that will always matter most. And I just think that. It's, it's a huge part of what makes them feel their age, that they are, you know, in their 60s and they're older fathers, so they're already dealing with the idea that their other peers have adult children, right? Where they still have, like, elementary school age children. And they're doing this on their own without the help of a partner, at least until they meet each other. And it really grounds them in something other than their romantic affection, yes, it does it does. I love that they can't just live in their own heads uh, you know the the giddy feeling of being in love with somebody. they can't just you know fall into bed together. I'm normally a more of a fast burn writer. This is not slow burn in the traditional sense. They still sleep together before the halfway mark but but It was slow for me because they have to negotiate the idea that before having sex, they probably should talk to their kids about the fact that they want to pursue a romantic relationship with this person, especially because they happen to be in the same house for this entire process. So there isn't, you know, a dating period or, you know, you can't get like a sitter or something like they're all four of them living in the same household. So the process of moving into a shared bedroom is a Big milestone. It's a level of commitment to one another that means that their children's lives are being upended. And they find, I think, common ground with one another. They've loved each other in the past, right? It isn't a question of, are we capable of loving one another? That is never the question that is being asked in the romance here. It's a question of, instead, are we capable of making a serious commitment work at this point in our lives. And the common ground of we're both single fathers and we both understand what this feels like ends up being, I think, a, a huge point of connection that persuades them that it's worth another go because they are more settled than they had been previously. Especially Tom is settled in a way that he had not been when he was operating as Voldemort. Because he's not going to up and leave his son's life. And so it gives not the confidence in saying like, yes, I will open myself up to you because I can see that you've like committed yourself to something that's even more important than any romance between you and I would be. And then the fact that neither of them is perfect and that they're like seeking reassurance from one another brings them closer. Again, this is a getting back together story. So if not for the kids, it's not that there would be no story, but it's like, it could be a lot shorter. (laughs) Right? Right. If if there are no kids, they could just be like, yeah, okay, you want to try again? Yeah, sure. You know? And if they break up, it's fine because, like, Tom lives in another country, so, like, Not could go back to Britain and they would never have to see each other again. But they're forced to, by virtue of being parents, really talk it out more, have conversations that they wouldn't have had.
0: They had to be very careful with the way that they went about this. Yes. You know, very thoughtful and intentional.
1: And their own, their own like internal fears about doing it wrong and screwing it up and screwing it up specifically for their children is what like drives the pacing of this in a way that I just, it would not have been possible if this were not kid fic.
0: I agree with that. I love what you said about these kids and their presences in the story sort of being a point of bonding between Tom and not. because I think that you're right. I sensed that they both struggled, I think, in different ways. I think they struggled with fatherhood and them being in each other's lives at that point when they're both single fathers and their children are around the same ages and being able to connect on that level. I'm sure was very meaningful for both of them. It was just really cool to see them both make that decision, I think internally, that they really wanted to do the best they could by their children. And you're right, they had to be very thoughtful and intentional with their relationship moving forward. Because when you have those kids involved, (laughs) like you said, it can't just be a fall into bed and let's see what happens, you know, kind of thing where you have to actually talk things out and be more intentional that way, which I loved. I thought that was really, really cool. I also thought it was really cool that you did, in a sense, incorporate, I think, some of these, well, it felt like you incorporated the main characters' backgrounds a little bit in their relationship with parenthood, you know? There's a part in the story where you do talk about particularly Tom Riddle's feelings about grief, those feelings of grief he had in relation to his own growing up experiences and his own father, you know, and what that relationship is to his experience now as a father. I thought it was just really interesting.
1: Yeah, I love Tom Riddle Sr., Tom's father. I love his character. I, I've I've written him in other stories. I just think he's fascinating and so tragic, so tragic because The implication from canon is that he's abducted and sexually assaulted repeatedly by Tom's mother. And then he finally breaks free and he runs away, which makes perfect sense to me. And then he lives presumably traumatized for the next like 16 years. And then his equally traumatized son encounters him and their trauma just matches in absolutely the worst way. And Tom Jr. Voldemort flies into a fit of rage and kills him. It's just, it's so sad. It's so, so sad. But it also, it's its just very fertile ground for an adult Voldemort who has killed his father to reflect upon is is this idea of like, should I have done that? Did that make sense? Did this need to happen? And I tend to think that the older that Tom gets, the more he's had like, people in his life who have prompted self-reflection, the more he's likely to, to feel grief, yes, over this choice, that he did not get to know the one person who was still around to kind of, like, give him a sense of who he might have been or who he was, or, you know, to establish this idea of familial identity. And especially in Clay, where he is a father himself, and he recognizes through watching his own son that, like, it's really difficult to be a parent, <laughs> that that it's not something that everyone is just, like, natively equipped to do, that there's struggle and there's disagreement, and you will resent your child at points. And part of being a parent is getting over that every time it comes up. And he just didn't Give his father a chance to do that. All of this happens. It's it's a flashpoint in a single evening, maybe only half an hour of acquaintance. And Tom, as a child, as a teenager, expected his father to be able to just like welcome him with open arms in that moment. And now he's realizing like, no, he probably needed years. And there's no reason I couldn't have given him years, but I didn't. I made this choice and I cut myself off and the end is like, yes, I murdered a person and that is bad and my dad's dead and that's because of me. And like, that's not great. But mostly it's, I removed my own opportunity to have built a relationship with a parent.
0: Yeah. And I love how that introspection or that opportunity for introspection does seem to affect his own decisions with parenting his own son, Harry, which I love. I feel like it's actually really great that he's in his older years, right, raising this kid, because I think that sort of lends itself to that type of introspection, which I just thought was really great because, you know, all parents, I think, come from a background, right? We all have backgrounds. We all have struggles and experiences that we bring with us into parenthood for those of us that are parents. And it seems like Tom does make some sort of conscious decision to at least attempt To not bring those same crazy dynamics, I guess, into his own relationship with his son, you know, which I thought was really interesting. Very, very interesting how he seems to consciously make that choice for himself and his son.
1: Yeah, I think he's very conscious of the ways that he fucked up as a young person. And I think it gives him a bit of patience and a little bit more ability to forgive his own child when Harry is acting out because he recognizes that, like, that's what's needed. Like, he's he has definitely earned every bit of Harry's ire through his own actions and through, like, some sort of, like, cosmic sense of justice. So he has a lot more patience as a parent, having had time to reflect on, like, his own relationship with his father and his own choices over the subsequent years of his life.
0: Yeah, I thought that that part in your fic where you talk about Harry's struggle with accepting Tom's past and the way that Tom chose to handle that to me was so compelling because it very well could have easily ended up like this a strange relationship like he had with his own father but instead of letting it get there he allows Harry to have his feelings about it and he's very patient in realizing that you know, this is gonna take my son some time to kind of process this and new information. And I can be patient. That's fine, you know? Which I was like, oh, that's actually very mature and cool of you,
1: dude. Like <laughs> way to <it> go. <laughs> you know, cause that could have gone either way. So Oh, absolutely. And and this is this is always back to I love writing Tom as an older character because it's not always written this way, I get it, but I just think that you have license to make him a little more melancholic, a little less like quick to anger, a little less reactionary. And he's such an interesting character, he's, he's, his life is full of very fascinating choices. And if you allow him just that little extra bit of like cautiousness, or patience, or self-reflection, I think it becomes very, very fascinating to play with what he could have been like as a person under those circumstances.
0: Yeah, I got the sense that he was essentially the same person, just a little more, I guess, mature, if that makes any sense, you know, like uh, less, uh, like like you said, less reactionary and uh, just at that age where you're able to kind of sit with things a little bit and reflect and uh, maybe not be so what's the word I'm looking for? Spontaneous with your reactions or your actions? You can kind of sit and think with them for a little bit, which I think is, is so fascinating. I love that introspection the most, I think, in fan fiction and literature. I was wondering what your favorite line or scene is from this fic. I personally loved the parts where the whole family watches Star Wars in the living room with the kids and everything. And they're kind of talking about The Darth Vader character from Star Wars with the kids and everything. Tom doesn't really say anything to this effect at the time. But as a reader, you can absolutely see the parallels between the Darth Vader character and Tom's past as Voldemort. So I thought that that was really apropos, really appropriate and just really interesting. I loved that. And then I also loved Tom's sentiment about wanting his own children to be better than he was. Those were two of my favorite scenes or lines from your fic. And I was wondering what yours are.
1: Yeah, I, I, um, I love all of the pop culture references I got to write in. So I will detour very briefly to just talk about the setting, because this is part of what I loved about writing this story. I have a personal connection to upstate New York, though I do not live there at the present. And so I've written a lot of Harry Potter fiction, which takes place in Britain, and I've never been to Britain. I don't fucking know. I have to do a lot of research. <laughs> right, it's right. exciting. It's fun. But it's not very personal for me. But then getting to write in a setting that I know, and in an era that I know with cultural references that I know, is just like, it's so, it's such a different writing experience. And it was so much fun. And, and these are like, we talk about being a millennial, like, these are references that I don't have to Google. Like, these are things that like I grew up with these are properties that I'm familiar with, and they're age appropriate for Theodore and Harry, who are kids in the eighties, like I know this stuff, so just getting to write you know like an area of the country of uh, the United States that I'm familiar with, and uh, getting to write like culture that I'm familiar with, it just feels like very real to me in a way that I found super exciting, so yeah, like the Star Wars stuff it's like of course they would watch Star Wars. They're <laughs> 8-year-old boys in the late 80s. Yes. Like why wouldn't they watch Star Wars? <laughs> exactly. And of course they're going to have opinions and feelings about it. And Like, yeah, I'm going to make the the Voldemort Darth Vader connection <laughs> because I have to. Right? Right. Uh that part we're not is like casting
0: glances over at Tom while the kids are discussing Darth Vader it was just so great. It was my favorite
1: thing. Well, and and like the other thing is I get to wink at other fandoms because I got to include not comparing himself to Obi-Wan. And Obi Wan and Anakin is not the biggest, but it is a reasonably sized ship from the prequel trilogy. So like, oh, okay, so if Voldemort's gonna be Darth Vader, then obviously not is gonna be like the slash pairing of choice <laughs> of, for course, him. of course. of course. <laughs> <laughs> um so it's just, you know, like I love these sort of like meta jokes I get to put in with pop culture references. But um but I do think actually you picked out one of my other favorite lines, which is the wanting his children to be better than he was, the end bits where we finally get to see Tom confront the choices that he's made like admit them because this this whole story is him like really not fully wanting to admit the things that he's done not out of really shame for them but it's it's more like he doesn't want to have to face the idea that these are his past that there is a break that he has elected to change his life priorities he for at least the first half of the story kind of postures as though he could do this again he could just pick it all up being voldemort again at any moment right and not very clearly realizes that that's not going to happen i would say he realizes that fairly early on after they start having these discussions but he like allows tom to come to that in his own time and when tom is finally the one who's able to say no i i'm not voldemort anymore at least i'm not voldemort in the sense of I'm, you know, a warlord running a revolutionary terrorist group in in Magical Britain. I'm not that. I'm never going back to that. That's not going to happen for me. My priorities are around raising my children, because he has two children by this point. He has fully taken on the role of Theodore's father. And I just, I want to, like, live out the rest of my life like this. Is, uh, that's a really big thing for him to be able to do. And it's big for Harry to get to, like, finally see his father, and it's big for not to realize that his partner is actually, like, committing to this. This is, like, the final line of commitment. Just, uh, yeah, the full embrace of fatherhood and of family. It's, it's like 60 years coming in his life, and he finally gets there, and... I I know it's like a little weird, or maybe not weird, it's a little cliche to say like, yeah, my favorite part of the fic is the ending. (laughs) But (laughs) Uh, Well, you you spoke earlier
0: about enjoying those sentiments of contentment for Tom, you -hmm. know, at the end of these stories. And I feel like that's exactly what you gave him there because you're right. He has that moment of embracing this new life with his partner. And now he has two children instead of just one, and they have a family together. And he really does enjoy a semblance of peace with this family that they've kind of cobbled together. And it's beautiful. And I absolutely did get that sense that he had that contentment at the end. It was lovely. I loved it. You know, I'm wondering, I know that you've done plenty of other fan fictions besides Made of Clay. I am wondering if the experience of writing Made of Clay was different from your experiences writing your other fanfictions.
1: It was. There's a handful of stories that I feel this way about, where just everything comes together exactly as I envisioned it, and Clay was one of those. I saw the story in my head, and it came out on paper in the precisely the same format, and I don't know, like there's something really exciting about having a vision that just like doesn't need to be adapted and that like doesn't run away from you. The other stuff is fun. I'd love when a character premise like kind of gets away from me too in a different way. But Clay was one of those stories where it's like I know what I want this to feel like for a reader and then it did it's just <laughs> I, the feedback I have gotten from people who have read it has been exactly what I wanted. Oh,
0: so the execution was on point here with this piece. Yes. Oh, I
1: love it. And sometimes, sometimes you write something and you're not exactly sure what it's going to be like. And you're like, there's a little more uncertainty about things because like, the characters take in a different direction. And, and it's super rewarding to see the ways that people react to that, too. I love all of the stories that I write. But when you just like, especially because this was this is my longest piece. It's a hundred thousand words, and I've never hit six figures again, and I probably never will. But just the the ability of being able to like deliver this this sort of like proof of concept for me as a fan fiction author of like I can write a six figure story that has like complex emotional narratives about parenting and romance and like identity and changing as you age. And like, it's done. It exists. It is it is there and people react to it exactly as I wanted it to. It's like, cool. I've achieved what I needed to achieve as a fan fiction
0: author. Yes, that must have felt so satisfying to get that out there and complete it. And like you said, the depth of the themes that are being explored here is just gorgeous. Absolutely gorgeous. So you should be extremely proud. It was amazing to experience it as a reader. Absolutely. So, I also wanted to know I think it's so amazing that you had this vision for Made of Clay and that that vision came through on the page for you, which is super awesome. But I imagine that there were probably some challenging parts of writing Made of Clay as well. I was wondering if you wanted to talk real quick about those challenging parts of this piece and how do you normally approach those types of challenges in your writing?
1: Yeah. So, part of the challenge was there's a confrontation with Moody in a chapter, and I, I had a lot of mixed feelings about approaching that, because for one, I don't really do stories with super high stakes most of the time. I, I really like these like intensely personal, small-scale narratives, and Moody felt like the that bit of the story felt like some higher-stakes stuff that I hadn't approached before. And I was worried because it comes in sort of, not the middle, but it's like not at the end. So I'm sort of like, I was like, oh, am I going to crest early? Is this going to be kind of silly? And like, people are going to get bored afterwards because all the tension is out of the story. And I ended up, I talked that one through with friends a lot as I was writing it, just like receiving reassurance that the story doesn't have to be about the big external conflict that, like, external conflicts are allowed to resolve, and there can be the interpersonal stuff that is actually the main thrust of the story. And I think part of what made me nervous about it is that the big interpersonal confrontation that had to happen within the family involved Tom and Harry and Tom's past and the various thorny issues of. I am your father, but also I killed your birth parents. And I think the, the real thing that helped is that I finally wrote that piece, right? When I when I sat down to actually write what became the penultimate chapter, I realized, like, no, this, this is the emotional crest of the story, right? The external conflict has already resolved because the external conflict was never meant to be more than... A part of the build towards this, if that makes
0: sense. That makes perfect sense because experiencing it as a reader for me, I felt like that confrontation with Harry, I don't maybe that's the wrong word. Confrontation is probably the wrong word, but that part where he comes home from his experience with Moody. And he knows that he has to tell Harry the truth. Yes. And to me, that felt more high stakes to me as a reader <laughs> than that whole week that he spent being interrogated <laughs> by Matt Eye Moody, you know, because I just I don't know. I just kind of felt like, OK, like, i th- I think he can still get out of this. You know, I think he can convince them that he's, you know, not Voldemort. He's just some guy, you know, in upstate New York with a kid like. Not dangerous. It's fine. So I expected that he would probably get to come home at some point. But when I realized that he was going to have to be very open and sharing these things with Harry, that felt so high stakes to me. Because once you tell the truth, you can never take that back. Nor can you control how the other person receives that information and what they choose to do with it. And this is his son. So like, yeah that to me was absolutely the overarching like high stakes crest of the story
1: yes yeah and and i think that's something that like came together when i finally when i finally did it i was dreading writing the tom and harry bit cuz i was just like oh my god i have no idea how to do this i was completely unsure of how to let them like come through this right it's it's awful it's awful to contemplate your father has actually killed your birth parents and yeah, no, what what the fuck? Yeah, um, yeah, like earth shattering, right? Earth shattering. But at the same time, he's the only father that Harry has ever known. And so they have to find some resolution. And not to get ahead of myself here, but I think the idea that their resolution is just the rest of their lives, right? Continuing to live with one another and Tom continuing to make space for Harry's hurt forever. Is the only way that could go.
0: Yeah, and I thought that that was so telling. I probably mentioned that earlier in the interview, but if anybody has any doubt, right, about how Tom really feels, about being a father, how he really feels about Harry as his son, the fact that he would make space for Harry's feelings and Harry's pain, I feel like tells you everything that you need to know about how he feels. I love it, love it, love it. So I was wondering, I know that you've only been writing since about 2020, like start of the pandemic, right? But you've got 37 pieces under your belt (laughs) at this point. And I know that before the show, you said that you, you have some stuff that you're working on and all that. I was wondering, what is the best writing advice that you've ever received?
1: I would say it's just to write. I know it sounds very basic, but the thing that I see most often holding people back and that I've that hold myself back sometimes in the past is is just this idea that there needs to be like not even perfection, but there needs to be something something else going on there. You need to hit an arbitrary word count mark for a day in order to be productive or your stories need to have a certain like depth of theme or maturity of concept or whatever. I don't care. The idea that like there's any sort of hurdle you need to jump over in order to justify writing, it's just going to be an excuse to not write. And then if you are not writing, you're not producing anything, you're never going to finish, you're never going to get better, you're never going to tell any stories at all, let alone good ones. And so the best writing advice is taken a lot of forms, but I think one of my favorite forms is something like write 200 words a day. Or 100 words or 50 words. Like For me, I have a sense of what a productive writing day looks like. I have a sense of my sort of max word count in a day. I have a sense of sort of like what's an easy word count for me to reach in a day. And I think this is all very individual and it's all very based on like the fact that I've written a decent bit of fan fiction at this point. So I have a lot of practice identifying these numbers, but for just like a new person or someone who's unsure of these things, I would say write 200 words a day because it gives you something that you are building on. And 200 words can be a complete story or 200 words can build towards a longer story. I mean, I do generally think that like starting with the goal of a one shot is more productive for most people than starting with the goal of like a chaptered story. But no matter what it is, no matter what your goal is, just sit down and write every single day and then you'll have something and you can edit it or not. You can post it or not, but the ideas are out of your head. You've had to confront the idea of putting them on a page and it gets less scary as you keep doing it.
0: Oh, I love that advice. I absolutely love that. I also love the sentiment of like getting rid of those external pressures that I think creative people sometimes put on themselves, right? Like you were saying. Uh, It has to be so many words or it has to be deep or it has to be this or that. But I mean, we were talking at the beginning of the show about how fan fiction removes all of those barriers anyway. So why not use that to our advantage here (laughs) and kind of remove those shoulds from ourselves, right? When we're pursuing these creative endeavors. And I love that advice about uh, 200 words a day, right? Because then you have something, like you said. That's awesome. That's beautiful. Thank you so much for that. We are getting to the end of the show here. Before we close out for the day, I wanted to ask if you have any other fan fiction writers that you wanted to shout out on the show real quick.
1: Yes. Uh, I'd love to shout out my friends in this little weird Voldemort circle. So I have two people I'd like to name. The first is a lady leaf who I'll spell that. Uh, it's Y L E T Y L Y F. Mm-hmm. Um, Who is also a Voldemort writer, but really loves Snape's character, writes a lot of Voldemort and Snape together, and really loves the parallels between sort of like these two, you know, maligned half bloods. One of those people I mentioned who likes the idea of Snape as a villain, which I just think is fun, you know, letting him be bad this time instead of having to like repent and beat himself up over everything. And the other person I'd like to name is metallomagnetic, who writes a lot of Voldemort rare pairs, which is near and dear to my heart. I love Voldemort rare pairs as well. And well, obviously, this whole conversation is Voldemort, <laughs> right, <rare>. right. <laughs> <laughs> um, who has a, a really big story where Tom is in a relationship with himself. So Tom sest a time travel type story where Tom and Voldemort come together, Voldemort raises young Tom Riddle, and then their writing is just really energetic and exciting, and it's, like, a very recognizable canon Voldemort for a lot of people, whereas I know that, like, my version of Voldemort can be sort of a mind bend, but their Voldemort is just as, like, I I think very relatable to me. There's a lot of familiarity in the way that he feels and experiences emotions, and they always bring that out in their rare pairs.
0: (sighs) both of those runners sound amazing. We'll make sure to put those links to their AO3 profiles up on the show notes so people can check those out. Those are all of the questions that I have for you today. Fantomato, do you have any last words for us today?
1: Oh, just thank you for having me on. I really enjoyed this conversation.
0: This has been absolutely wonderful. What a great conversation. I had so much fun speaking with you today. Thank you so much for joining us. Check out their stories on AO3 and give them some love. You can find the Fanfic Maverick online at fanficmaverickpodcast.com, on Tumblr at fanficmaverickpodcast, on Instagram and Twitter at fanficmaverick, and I can always be reached at fanficmaverick at gmail.com. Thank you all so much for listening. Don't forget to subscribe, and I will see you all next episode. In the meantime, keep on rolling.